few years ago, there was a uh, an old man who was walking down the street. He had with him uh, his dog and his mule, as all of us do when we walk down the street these days. And as he was walking with his dog and his mule down the street, he was on some back country roads. He was um, kind of taken aback when a pickup truck came around a corner a little too fast. And in the midst of it, it knocked the pickup truck, knocked all three of them off the road into a ditch. Well, a few weeks later, the old man decided he was going to sue the driver of the pickup truck. And so... Um, they sued and he went to court and in court they put the old man on the stand and the counsel, the attorney for the, um, for the driver said, I just got one question for you. I just got one question for you. I need you to answer it with a yes or a no. That's it. No other explanation. I just need yes or no. One question for you. Did you or did you not tell the driver, my client, that you were perfectly fine? Well, the old man said, well, I was walking down the road with my mule and my dog. And the, the, the counsel said, wait, wait, that, no, that's not. I said, yes or no. Did you tell my client you were perfectly fine? Well, I was walking down the road with my dog and my mule. He said, objection, your honor. He is not answering the question. I need him to answer. And the judge says, well, he seems to want to tell us something. We'll give him just a little leeway. An old man said, well, I was walking down the road with my mule and my dog, and this man came around the corner too fast, and he knocked us into a ditch. And he got out of his truck, and he walked over, and he looked at us, and my dog was seriously injured. And so the man went back to his truck, pulled out his shotgun, and came back and shot my dog. And then he noticed that my mule's leg was broken, and so he took the shotgun, and he shot the mule. And then he looked at me and said, how are you? And I said, perfectly Fine, right? Sometimes we need perspective or the whole story to make a judgment, right? Are you here, right? right? It makes a difference when we get the full picture, when we kind of zoom out and see everything when we're making decisions about what's happening in our lives. And um, I was thinking about it this week, that generally in life there are two ways that we view things. And the classic example of the way you can determine how you view things is how you think of this. Right? People either describe it as half full or half empty. And those people that describe it as half full, we call, in a more technical term, optimist. Right? Right? Okay. Y'all, y'all are slow to respond today, right? Optimist. What do we call people that um, see that as half empty? Pessimist. Although if you ask a pessimist, they'll say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. Just how it is. I tell things how it is, right? And so you can tell a lot about your life, about whether you are see that as a half full or half empty. And I would ask um, what you are, but you're in church, and you would think I'd have to raise my hand on half full because that's what they're supposed to say. But I, I was thinking about this combination, the contrast between optimist and pessimist this week, when I ran across a quote that I thought was really, really good. And it's this perspective idea that matters. And this is the quote I ran across. No pessimist ever discovered the secrets of the stars or sailed to uncharted land. Optimism is the harmony of man's spirit and the spirit of God pronouncing his works good. But man, that's an interesting quote, right? No pessimist 
has ever discovered the secrets of the stars or sailed uncharted land. The idea behind it is that in order to be someone that is going to discover something or try something, you have to think it's going to turn out okay and not be pessimistic about life. And that the explorers, the adventurers are the continually optimistic, glass half full kind of people. And then I saw who said the quote and it made it a little more powerful. This is who said. Does anybody know who this is? Anybody know? Going once, going twice. This is, she's a lady who's had a play written about her. She was the first woman in history or the first person in history that was both deaf and blind to get a degree from a university. Anybody know now? Helen Keller right there, right? Now think about this. Helen Keller was born a born healthy baby, and sometime around 18 or 19 months old, she developed a, a disease that eventually took her sight and her hearing. Both. I remember in college watching the miracle worker, the play about um, Ann Sullivan, who's the lady that gets through to her and helps to teach her. And Helen Keller went on to do amazing things. And you read that quote, and you're like, well, it makes a difference who says it. In fact, she also said this, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight, but no vision. The quote that I read to you, by the way, is out of a book written by Helen Keller, of all people, called Optimism. About the importance of looking forward in hope and not with pessimistic thoughts. Well, I was looking through all that. I also discovered a modern-day Helen Keller, a guy that I've known about for a little bit, but I read a little more about him this week, and it's this guy named Nick Vukovic. And he's born with no arms or legs. No arms or legs. Now, he's a guy that's given his life to Christ, and he's, he goes all across the world teaching about Christ. And in the moments that he's taught about Christ, in those venues, he's had over 200,000 people come to Christ. Somebody asked him what he felt like. Well, wouldn't you rather have arms and legs? I mean, that's kind of a crazy question to ask somebody, right? Wouldn't you rather have arms and legs? And I loved his response. This is what he said. He said, I'd rather have no arms and no legs here on earth and spend eternity with those who came to faith through my testimony. Now, my whole goal today was just to make you feel bad that all these people are doing this stuff, right? And you're complaining about your coffee not being hot enough in the morning. Now, I do think it matters the perspective we have in life. And as a Christian, one of the things that we have to do, we have to be realistic about the situation and all that is happening in our lives. We have to be realistic about the pain and the suffering and the evil in our world, about the pain and the suffering in our own lives, about the reality of things that cause us pain, that cause us not to be able to live as we would like to live. We have to be realistic about that. And yet we must live with a hope that comes from Christ. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. And we're looking and following over the last couple of weeks. And we got a week off last week. Uh, but through the next two weeks, we're going to finish out this chapter in Scripture of Romans chapter 8. And we're going to talk today about a guy who lived realistically but optimistically as well. 
In fact, he's going to, the passage we're going to focus on starts in verse 18 of chapter 8, but we're going to look back at the couple of verses before that because Paul wants us to realize that when he wrote Romans, he was writing in a place where he was saying things realistically, but he also lived with hope. In fact, chapter 8, starting in verse 15 or 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, that's one of those statements in Scripture we just kind of read over, that we just kind of, that's cool, that, that's exciting. But for someone to write that we are children of God directly related to Him, when in fact we are people who on our own choosing walked away from God and lived in condemnation of our own sin, and only through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and what He did for us at Calvary, are we able to call ourselves children of God? It is a remarkable statement that is made by Paul that the title in our life that matters most of all is that I am a child of God. I don't think we allow that to sink in, that we are his family. And in case we missed what that means, it means lots of things, but he gives us one thing it means, and if children, then heirs. Okay, now what's an heir? What's that? What, what is that? You inherit whatever the father's estate has. Okay? So an heir is someone that is entitled to whatever the father has. Now let me ask you a quick question. Okay? It's not a trick question. How much does God have? All, right? I don't know if you've seen this, but we, we, we discovered a new planet. Did you see this? How many of you have seen that? Like we discovered, we, they think there's a new, a, a planet at the edge of the solar system. You want to talk about a bad year and a half for Pluto. Right? I mean, two, three years ago, Pluto was living life. He's a, a planet. It's good. Then they find out it's not really a planet. It's too small. They call it a dwarf planet, not even a planet. And now not only is it not a planet, it's had somebody replace him. It's like he's lost the girl and somebody stepped in, right? Here's the thing. The new planet that we discovered isn't new to God. He's known about it all along. He owns it all. And it says in here, this is Paul talking, and Paul says, we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. So if we're called children of God, that means that we have the right to declare that we are in line for the inheritance of God and co-heirs with Christ, who is the Son of God directly. And if you just stopped there, and I know you didn't, you've already moved on because the next words are in yellow, right? But if you just stopped there, people would look at me and say, Paul, I hear what you're saying, but it doesn't feel that way. Are there days when it doesn't feel like you're the child of God, a joint heir with the creator of the universe? Are there days when life gets in the way of your understanding of what it means to live for God completely? Are there days of suffering and trial and difficulty and pain? Apparently not. Are there days like that? Yes, right? And people looked at Paul and said, wait a minute, Paul, I don't think you understand what's going on here. Now, listen, he's writing to the, to the Romans. Where, where do the Romans live? Rome, right? Now, let me just ask you a question. This doesn't require any biblical knowledge, okay? Just think about this. In history books, do Rome and Christians go together very well? No, right? 
What happened to Christians in Rome? They got burnt. They got thrown into a, uh, they would take them down to Nissan Stadium. That's what it is now, right? have, Have it filled with people, the Roman Colosseum. Throw them in there with wild animals or gladiators and say good luck for sport. And so when he's writing to them and the people in Rome are like, Paul, that sounds great. But you you realize I've lost my job (laughs) and my family's walked out on me and I can't get it. I can't even buy stuff at the market because I'm marked as a Christian. Like, I understand what you're saying. That sounds great, Paul, but that's not my reality. And Paul says, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may glorified with him. He says, listen, I understand that your experience in life is going to be marked because it will be shown to have trouble and difficulty and trials and suffering and pain. What I love about Romans chapter 8, this entire chapter, hopefully you've been reading. I had uh, somebody come up to me this week and said, by the time you get through with this series, I want the whole thing memorized. That'd be great, right? That's nothing wrong with that. What you start with in Romans 8, 1 and following is the glorious thing we have in Christ. No condemnation. We are sons of God. We are a part of his family. We have been saved by him. What you get to at the end of Romans, which we'll talk about next week, is that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is absolutely nothing in heaven or hell or in between or principalities or people or any. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So at the beginning you have this is who you are in Christ. It's magnificent. There's no condemnation. At the end, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. But right in the middle middle where we're going to talk today, Paul says, but we must come to an understanding of how to live in the midst of the difficulty that life brings. And so what happens in Romans chapter eight, chapter eight, verse 18 and following is Paul gives us three reasons that we can have hope in the midst of difficulty. He starts in verse 18 saying this, for I consider now I put this word in parentheses here that may be in some of your translations, but uh, the word actually in the original language is reckon. For I reckon. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Like, if you grew up in the South, you heard, I reckon, right? My granddad, if you ask him if something was going to happen and it was going to happen, he just said, I reckon. Yeah. And it was just a Southern slang way. Y'all didn't know Paul was from the South there, right? Paul says, I reckon. And what this means is that he's considered it, he's weighed it, he's looked at it, his experiences in life, his study of the Word of God, his understanding of the Spirit speaking within him. He says, when I look at all together, the word was an accounting term. When I list the checks and balances, when I list the pros and the cons, when I list the debits and the deposits, what I've come to is this. He says, basically, look, I know you're going through some difficult times and I'm near the end of my time. And as I'm looking at that, what I've come to understand is this is true. By the way, a little aside, I was reading commentaries on this this week. And it says it's this is the voice of someone who's gotten to that part of their lives where they're counting down instead of counting up. Like days they're counting down instead of days they're counting up like they're, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about? And then it said this, says that happens to people when they hit 40. And I was like, no, 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 that doesn't happen to us when we hit 40. Because I hit 40 Wednesday of this week. Like I got two days left in the 30s. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 that's like 60. That's like 70. Was like, some of you are like, that's like 80. All right. But it means that you've looked at your life. Paul's looked at his life and he says, this is what I know. 
And he says, the sufferings of this time, as, as bad as they are. I mean, this is people getting thrown to the lions, literally. It's people being burned at the stake, literally. As bad as they are, they are not worth comparing. They are incomparable. They do not come close to being even put into a comparison or a pro or con list with the glory that has been revealed to us. They don't compare. Paul reminds us that in order for us to live with the proper perspective here, we must always remember who we are and what's ahead. Three things he tells us. First of all, we have a glorious future. Amen? We have a glorious future. Look what it says there as we go back to verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then verse 19 he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This says creation waits. What he says here is like that, that the creation is sitting around and they're waiting for the curtain to rise on this amazing performance, this amazing show that's about to happen. You, you ever been to a show that you're really excited about going to see and there's curtain out there or there's something that's veiling what's happening and right at that moment, right in that moment before the curtain rises, there's this hushed silence that comes over the crowd. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? And as it begins to rise, the anticipation level in the place is so palatable. You can feel it. You can taste it. You know what's about to happen. And it's in that moment that you are waiting with expectation that something is about to blow your mind. What Scripture says is that creation is waiting for that moment with us. For creation waits with eager longing for what? To see what God's going to do? Yes. But where? Where specifically? To see where he's going to reveal who we are. In fact, it is this word that means, it's the same word that is used for revelation, for the book of Revelation, apocalypto, which means the apocalypse to be unveiled, to be removed, to be shown. It is a final unveiling of a divine strategy and purpose that has been obscured by the harsh reality that we live in and that at some point God is going to come in and he's going to radically transform everything we know, most specifically and most gloriously, you. You. That what creation is longing for is for us to be set right. For we know. That the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. If you look in scripture over and over again, they talk about the pains of childbirth because there's this reality that suffering is real. But that what comes after the suffering, what comes in the end is so amazing that sometimes you forget the pain of what's happened. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption as sons, the completion of our salvation For in this hope, we were saved. It says that the Spirit, it tells us in a minute, are the first fruits of that in verse, that verse. That we've gotten the Spirit and it's just the beginning. But when the curtain is pulled back, we will be revealed. In fact, um, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, 
what God has prepared for those who love him. I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? I'm pretty good at imagining up how good a good place would be. Like, I'm pretty, like, I've got a pretty good imagination. If you say, just imagine the greatest place you can imagine. And for some of you, it would be different than what mine would be. Our world would call it your happy place or place of escape. Some of you would be on a beach, right? Some of you would be on the ski slopes. I had enough snow, right, last week. Some of you would be in the middle of a city or surrounded by people. I mean, I've got a pretty good idea of what, what a meal looks like there, you know. Steak. None, none of this. We're not doing vegetables at all. We're not doing any of that, right? The steak and sweets, that's it. Not at the same time, but that's the meal, all right? Big ribeye, perfectly cooked, butter melted on top of it, right? Don't do this to me at 11.30 is what you're saying, right? Like with with chocolate molten lava cake afterwards like i can come up with a good scenario for what heaven would be like and god says nobody's even imagined how unbelievable it is man paul looks at him and says i know you're going through junk right now and the truth is in this room some of you are going through difficult moments financially relationally you've been through a divorce you've been through a, a restructuring of your of your credit you've been through a, a place where a business failed you've been you're, you're right now at a place where you say that sounds great but when i go home this afternoon i've got a bill to pay tomorrow and i don't know where the money's coming from or i know where it's coming from but i don't know where the money's coming from to pay for that because i don't know that's the only place i can get it from is there and then i'm done some of you are suffering through illnesses, and maybe you've told people, or maybe you haven't. You've got loved ones that are very, very sick, or you've got a job situation that it's making money, but it's just not what you envision. You're suffering and hurting. And Paul says, I, I'm not diminishing your hurt. I'm not diminishing how bad it is. But I am telling you that what's in the future is so much better. And then he tells them, not only that, he says, that while you're waiting and hoping for the future, that doesn't mean you've left out in the cold for the present. Because he tells them that we have a sympathetic advocate. We have someone who is walking with us through this. This is what he says to them in Romans 8 here. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. Now, that's another one of those phrases we just kind of skip over, but that means the spirit of the living God, the uh, spirit that hovered over all the earth, one of the parts of the Trinity, equal with God, equal with the Son, the Holy Spirit of God helps you. In the midst of those moments, like, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. The Spirit of God helps you. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And this is just one example. This isn't saying the only thing that He does for us. But when we don't even know what to pray, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. You ever been in one of those moments where you don't even know what to say? You don't even know what to pray? Like, you think, God, I don't even know what to, to come to you with right now. It says in those moments, you just cry out and say, Lord, I don't know. And the Spirit 
intercedes on our behalf. He is our advocate. It says in Scripture that we have two advocates standing right next to the Father. Speak on our behalf. First is our Savior who died for us on the cross. The second is the Spirit who advocates from the groanings of our heart. In fact, the next verse says this about it. And we who searches our hearts, He knows everything about us. He knows what's in our mind. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're dealing with because the Spirit intercedes for us according to that and to the will of God. Listen, whatever you're going through, first of all, be confident in a future that is glorious. Secondly, realize that we have an advocate to be here. Jesus told us that we would have a spirit that would help us in John chapter 14, right before he went to the Father. He said, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you a helper. Now, you imagine those guys are freaking out because Jesus is like, I'm about to leave. I'm going to be gone. I'm about to die. And they're like, well, if you go, what are we going to do? And he says, I'll send a helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees or knows. This is for you, followers of Jesus Christ. Here's the Spirit. And here's the last thing. Not only do we um, have a glorious future and a sympathetic advocate, but we also have a sovereign, good God. Romans 8, 28 is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, but here it says, and we know. The word know there, just like the video we watched at the beginning of the service, the word know there means absolutely settled, sure, certain, no doubt. We know that God works together all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Tim Keller, is a pastor in New York, says three things that you see in this verse alone that are comforting to us but also gives us a reality check. And the first thing is this, that all things happen to Christians. We are not a special class of citizen that has God remove everything bad that's ever going to happen to us. We experience life and loss just like everybody else on this planet. And secondly, that when things work together, it's because of God and not serendipity or chance or fate. But it is God that works those things together. And the last thing is he works them together for our good. Now, I want you to notice something real quickly, and then we're going to kind of bring this to a close. First of all, notice it doesn't say that everything happens for a reason. You ever heard that phrase? Everything happens for a reason. Well, that's sort of true, but what people mean by that is you can't really worry about it. Life's just going to be what life's going to be. This verse never says that everything that happens to you is good. What it says is, That when things happen in your life, God is able to rework even the messes in your life into something good. The verse that most people think this is harkens back to or talking about is Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 where Joseph, you remember Joseph, right? His brothers are sitting before him. Joseph is sitting there. Brothers are sitting before him. Brothers are scared to death because they kind of messed up when it came to Joseph. Like badly, right? Like what do they do to Joseph? They... Sold him into slavery. Okay? Anybody here have, uh, anybody here that are parents have more than one child? Anybody have more than one child? Right? Anybody here grow up with a, a sibling of any kind? Right? You ever heard of something called sibling rivalry? You ever had that? Anybody ever heard that, right? Any of you parents ever watch your kids in sibling rivalry and think, I just wish I could separate them for like 20 years, right? Like, I grew up in the era of no uh, videos in the car, no, you know, no fun stuff in the car. We had those pads that you played games on in the cars. Y'all remember those? 
And we, we would drive and we, I mean, you see this on TV shows. We don't have to do this anymore because we used to say, here's the iPad, watch the iPad. But we used to do the imaginary line in the middle of the car, right? Like, don't move past the line. And then my brother's hand would move past it. I'm not touching. I'm not touching. Right. That whole that whole thing. Imagine if you came home and your one of your kids said, Mom, I got in a disagreement with uh, Bob today. And uh, uh, I don't want to tell you this, but we sold him into slavery. Just couldn't handle it anymore. We did that like that would be serious, right? And so the brothers come back to Joseph, who has every right and legal authority to punish them severely as he is standing before them as the second in command in Egypt. And he says to them what you intended for evil. Now, he doesn't let them off the hook completely, right? That's a brother to a brother there. What you, I know what you were trying to do. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I don't know what kind of message you've had in your life. I don't know what kind of mess you're in right now. But I can guarantee you this. God is sovereign and good and capable of reworking anything that's going on. Paul looks at him in the midst of this glorious chapter on the goodness of God and the greatness of his love and all that is happening. And he says to them, trials will be real. But trust in a glorious future, a sympathetic advocate, and a sovereign Good God. You see, the last part of that understanding is that we serve a God that is completely in control. Completely in control. You know, it's important. Who wins that election coming up in November? Do you know there's an election coming up in November? Do you know that? There's like one coming up sooner, but it's important who wins all those elections. It is. It's important for our country. It's important for all of that. So in the grand scheme of things, it's important. But can I tell you something? In the grand scheme of things, it's really not. Because whoever's in the White House doesn't displace God Almighty. And he's still in control. And we trust not in the name of someone that has a D or an R or an I at the end that we cast our ballot for. We trust in the name of God Almighty who is the sovereign good God that works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, here's the understanding. That may not be seen until we get to the other side. But it's true nonetheless. Let's pray together.